Amen. Well, turn with me to Proverbs chapter 13, please. Proverbs chapter 13, and we'll be looking at verse 19 tonight. The title of this lesson tonight is called Sweetness of Soul. A desire accomplished is sweet to the soul, but it is an abomination to fools to depart from evil. So what does sweetness of soul mean? It sounds great, doesn't it? And we just sang about endless bliss. Jesus Christ was born for this. We will one day have endless bliss talks about sweetness of soul. How do we arrive at it and what keeps us from it? Well, first, I'll make a statement that is irrefutable, and that's this. Sweetness of soul is the sole domain of the godly. It's the sole domain of the godly. Only the godly can attain it because it's only given to those who are pursuing God. The sweetness of soul possessed by the godly is something desired by the ungodly uh, or fools, as this passage puts it, but they cannot have it because it is an abomination for them to depart from evil, let alone to pursue godliness and holiness. And I know I quoted this on Sunday. I quoted it often, but I, I quote it often, but I like the words to this hymn where it says, Solid joys and lasting pleasures none but Zion's children know. And this is a truth, a biblical truth. This sweetness of soul comes to us on account of a desire accomplished, it says here. A desire accomplished is sweet to the soul. Well, what desire is meant here? Well, let's consider, first of all, what it doesn't mean, what it cannot possibly mean. First, can it be a wicked desire accomplished? Well, the answer would be no, because when wicked people get their wicked desires fulfilled, it does not result in sweetness of soul, but rather just the opposite. Their getting of their wicked desires accomplished leaves a bitter aftertaste. It might seem sweet at first, but later on it will bite them like an adder. Well, secondly, can it be a good desire accomplished in the life of an ungodly person? The answer, again, is no. Now think of all the good things, for example, that Solomon did. He built a temple. He built a big palace for himself. He planted gardens and fruit trees. He acquired male and female servants. He got herds and cattle and flocks of sheep. All of this from Ecclesiastes chapter 2. He got silver and gold. Um, none of these are bad. He desired them and he got them. Uh, and did, he, did they give him sweetness of soul? Not at all. In Ecclesiastes 2, verses 10 and 11, it says this. It says, Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was my reward for all my labor. So he got enjoyment for all, from all of these things, but he didn't get sweetness of soul because verse 11 says, Then I looked at all the works that my hands had done and on the labor in which I had toiled, and indeed, all was vanity and grasping for the wind. See, there was no profit. He said, there's no profit under the sun. And that's, that's Solomon. 
It doesn't sound like sweetness of soul to me. So we know that this verse cannot be saying that uh, sweetness of soul has gotten in these other ways. So what is it saying? Well, what desire accomplished really does bring sweetness to the soul. Well, Jesus told the Samaritan woman what that was, didn't he? He said in John 4, 13 and 14, he says, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. The water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. You see, here is a desire accomplished that brings sweetness to the soul. And nothing else, nothing else but that water that Christ gives will bring sweetness to the soul. If we run after earthly pleasures, whether they're legitimate pleasures or sinful ones, these will leave us desiring more. We will thirst again. They will not bring us sweetness of soul. But if we found the desire of our soul, the Lord Jesus Christ, we will never thirst again. You know, there's a desire within the heart of every man, woman, and child that only God can fulfill. And there's only one way to have this, and that's through the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's through surrendering our lives to God and uh, coming by faith to Jesus Christ. And I know that uh, most of you have done that. I mean, this, this is what brings us sweetness of soul. Um, Nothing else will do but the gospel of Christ. It was said of Zacchaeus that when Jesus told him to come down from that tree in, in Luke chapter 19, that he made haste and he came down and he received him joyfully. He received him joyfully. You know, I remember when I received Christ. I mean, I had had happy and joyful moments in my youth, periods of time, Christmas time, youth, youthful pleasures. It lasted for a little bit of time here and there. But when Jesus came to me, I found sweetness of soul. I found a, a treasure. And, and, and I understand what he meant when he told the Samaritan woman, if you drink of this water, you will never thirst again. And it's been 50 years. 50 years this year, I've told you that several times. And for 50 years, I've not, I've not thirsted. I've not thirsted. Jesus Christ has quenched that thirst. Uh, Jesus said to me the same thing he did to Zacchaeus, basically. He says, come down and, and, and I must stay at your house today. And I came down and I received him joyfully. And he did come home with me and he stayed at my house ever since. And his fellowship with me has been sweet to my soul and not for an hour or not for a week and not for a year but like i say for 50 years now and um, and he promises that that it will have no end that is sweetness of soul and that is i will defend that in this verse that this is what it means we find christ in the book of proverbs don't we we find the gospel here but the rest of the verse says but it is an abomination to fools to depart from evil now, this is the explanation for why most people reject the gospel. Now, you would think that with such a wonderful promise of eternal and everlasting happiness to be found in Christ, you would think 
that people would receive it, wouldn't you? You would think uh, that this good news would be joyfully received by everybody that ever hears the gospel, wouldn't you? When I was first saved, that's the way I thought it should be. I go up and around telling people the gospel of what Jesus did for me, and I was surprised that people didn't want to didn't want to listen, didn't want to hear it. It makes no sense to turn away from something that good, does it? But oh, the powerful barriers that the grace of God has to break through to save a sinner. We talked about that three weeks ago, the last time we were in the book of Proverbs, uh, three weeks ago, when we spoke in verse 18. And verse 18 uh, says, Poverty and shame will come to him who disdains correction, but he who regards the rebuke will be honored. And we talked about the barrier of pride that God has to break through in order to save us. Everybody has to be... Everybody, everyone that's been born again has had to humble themselves through repentance to come to Jesus Christ. No one comes to Christ without humbling themselves and repenting before the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we have a lifetime of humbling ourselves, don't we? we, we I've not mastered it yet. But, but I know I had to bow the knee. I had to, I had to humble myself uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ to come to him. And that's a barrier that has to be broken through. And that is a very powerful barrier. We talked about that three weeks ago, you might remember. Well, we've, we've had to admit that we were going the wrong way and that now we need to stop and repent and we need to go another way. We need to go Christ's way. And, uh, and this humility is not natural to anyone. It takes the supernatural power of God to bring us to such a place of humility but here, in this verse here, he gives us another very powerful barrier that takes nothing less than the omnipotence of God to break through it in order to save a sinner. And it is, that it is this, that it is an abomination to fools to depart from evil. That's just as powerful of a barrier as the barrier of pride. This is very strong language here. All the translations I have at home agree with, with these words here, abomination, except the NIV, which uses the word detest, which I think is a good synonym uh, for, uh, for uh, abomination. The fools detest turning from evil. Uh, it's an abomination to them. Uh, here we see again how the Bible is so unified. Uh, it's unified in doctrine from cover to cover. And from cover to cover... Remember, it took 1,500 years writing the Bible from 40, about 40 different authors, and, uh, and they all wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and we see a unity, a unity of doctrine throughout the Holy Scriptures. And I want you to, I want you to be amazed at that as we turn to Romans chapter 8. A thousand years after Solomon wrote these words, um, we have Paul writing Romans chapter 8, and I want you to turn there. <clears throat> to Romans chapter 8. I want to read verses 5 through 8, and I want you to keep in mind what, what we've just read in Proverbs. Romans 8, beginning in verse 5, says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. 
Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Do you see here, Paul is teaching the exact same doctrine that Solomon was teaching in Proverbs 13, 19. It's an abomination to fools to depart from evil because their carnal minds are at enmity with God. And they will not subject themselves to God's law, nor indeed can they. And so their carnal mind, excuse me, is death for them. They set their minds on the things of the flesh and they can do nothing else. The law of God is not something they simply prefer not to obey. They abhor it. They abhor it with all their hearts. Now, there's a huge, even an eternal gap then between righteousness and wickedness. They cannot mix. Proverbs 29:27 says, An unjust man is an abomination to the righteous, and he who is upright in the way is an abomination to the wicked. Now, Jesus commands us, of course, to love our enemies and to do good to all men. So even though their ways are an abomination to us, it's not that we hate them. It's not that we don't love them, of course. But we can never enter into fellowship with them. There are two radically different ways of thinking between the Christian and the non-Christian. And we need to understand that. And it's, it's uh, Sometimes it's hard for, for Christians to accept that because they'll run into people that have a lot of common grace. And they seem so kind, they seem so gentle, they seem so winsome and all of that. And they cannot understand the, the, the enmity against God that lies within the heart of that unconverted person. So this is why God forbids us to marry an unbeliever. They hate God and we love God. Now, they would never say that they hate God. Uh, Many would say that they love God. That is, if they have a mental acknowledgement that a God exists, if they're not an atheist, if they have a concept of God at all, and you ask them, uh, these unbelievers, that they they believe that there is a God, there's an intelligent design to creation, there's there's some being that has made us, and you ask them, well, now, do you hate this being? Of course not. Of course they would say, of course I don't hate them. Because, you see, from their perspective, they do love the God that they've imagined in their mind. That is, that's the God that they've imagined in their mind, not the actual God of the Bible. They've fashioned a God in their own imagination. Uh, Their God is an idol that doesn't require them to pursue godliness and holiness. So, of course, they love the God of their own making. This God has... Uh, God is not going to uh, condemn them uh, for their sin. But their enmity of the true and living God is seen whenever the law of God is declared. Tell them that God hates, for example, sexual sin, that he hates adultery, that he hates fornication, that he hates homosexuality. And believe me, their hatred of God will come out in the open very quickly. And their hatred of you for saying it. Tell them that God will judge their sin. And cast all that don't repent and receive Christ into hell. 
And watch them boil over in rage. And they'll even say things like, my God would never do anything like that. Of course, you know, the answer to that is, of course your God wouldn't do that. Because your God doesn't exist. But the God of the Bible has promised that he will. And they will hate that God. That's where you see their rage against God. We see these verses in, in this text in Romans 8. In our text tonight in Proverbs, is, it's fulfilled every day in our society. It really is an abomination for fools to depart from evil. They really are at enmity against God, and they really will not submit to the law of God. I've given this example before, but it's been some years. You've probably forgotten it. I know I have. But uh, I had an employee many years ago. uh, I won't tell you his name. uh, And I was trying to lead him to Christ. And by the way, he's still my employee. He still works there. He still likes me, too. But uh, at least he says he does. I think he does. But anyway, I was trying to win him to Christ. And I was uh, we had a long talk about the gospel. And 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 he was certainly uh, not an atheist. He certainly believed there was a God. Uh, He certainly believed that there was a God that would there would be a judgment day. He believed in that. He believed in Jesus Christ. Um. I talked to him about the resurrection. I talked to him about all these gospel truths that were so essential for salvation. And he, he acknowledged all of these things, but he was, he would not commit his life to Christ. And, um, and I, he kept saying, oh, it's, it's hard. It's so hard. And he kept repeating that, you know, and we'd talk some more and then he, then he thinks some more. Just, it's hard. Well, I knew something about him. I knew that he was living in sin with his girlfriend. And that's why it was hard. That's why it was difficult to give his life to Christ. I remember asking him, I said, yeah, it's a real hard thing to die, isn't it? Because I said, when you come to Christ, you really have to die to yourself. And I said, you don't want to give up. You don't want to give up your sins. I can't remember all the things that I told him, but he left my office undeparted. It was an abomination for him to depart from evil. You see, he couldn't give in give up his live-in relationship. And he knew instinctively, uh, or maybe not instinctively, maybe, you know, through my sharing of the gospel, maybe I did it right, so he understood that, you know, you really can't come to Christ if you're not willing to give up your sin. But, um, you know, what I could have done, though, was I could have told him, don't mind about your sin. Uh, Never mind about repenting over your sin, uh, your fornication with your girlfriend. Uh, Just accept Christ. Just pray this prayer and you'll be saved. Couldn't I have said that? Are there evangelists that would have said that? Of course there are. And, you know, um, could have said just accept Jesus and then later on hopefully you'll repent. Later on maybe you'll get serious and be a disciple and actually want to repent. And isn't that the message of so many false prophets today? And I call them false prophets. They are preaching a different gospel. That is a different gospel. And they are false prophets that say those things. You can accept Jesus as your Savior, but not your Lord. These are not just brethren we disagree with. These are false prophets. Accept Jesus as your Savior. And later on, hopefully, you'll accept him as your Lord. And this is why we see so many people today living in open rebellion against the law of God, and yet they have full assurance of their salvation. 
How can this be? Unless they've embraced a false gospel. And that's why Paul said things like what he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. Because evidently the same error was in the first century. He said, do not be, be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor drunkards, nor on and on. He says, shall inherit the kingdom of God. He says, such were some of you. But we have people preaching a different gospel, and it's pretty common in the United States today and in the world. And they're confident they're going to, going to heaven. I remember I had one of my nieces one time. She was living in open sin. She was raised in a gospel home in a Baptist church. She had walked the aisle as a little girl. She was, she was, she was uh, living in open sexual sin, um, um, uh, you know, playing around with illicit drugs, you know, getting high on drugs and all the, all the, everything. Absolutely no desire for, for, for righteousness, no desire for church, nothing, no fruit of the spirit whatsoever. I sat her down in my office and I, I said, I said, I want you, to, I want to ask you, if you were to die today, would you go to heaven? And she said, without hesitation, yes, yes, I would. Now, I hope this is shocking to you, <laughs> but she did. That's what she said. And, you know, and I took her to passage after passage, the one I've just quoted and other passages like that, clear passages, clear passages. To tell you, if you live this kind of lifestyle, you're going to hell. And I couldn't move her. I could not move her to doubt her salvation. She was that firm in her assurance of salvation. Now, let me tell you, if you got that kind of assurance of salvation, that's a scary thing. And But I'm telling you, that's common. That's common. And... Um, and so, uh, uh, and so, what did Jesus say? Matthew seven. He said, "Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven." Many will say to me in that day, "Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name?" And then I will declare to them, "I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness." What's the indictment? What's the reason he, he, he sends them away? His indictment is you who practice lawlessness. You see, they profess Christ. They call him Lord. They call Jesus Lord. But they practice lawlessness. That was the lifestyle they lived. And so, um, and so, uh, um, he didn't say to these he condemned, he didn't say, uh, you who didn't attain to sinless perfection, though you did battle with sin all your life. <laughs> I'm so glad he didn't say that, right? But he said, you who practice lawlessness. Lawlessness was their lifestyle. Sin was their lifestyle. They didn't depart from evil. They made sin and evil their practice and so their condemnation. So, if I told my employee, well, just pray this prayer and ask Jesus into your heart. Don't worry about turning away from your sin. I, I think it's very likely I could have talked him into it. I think he really wanted he wanted something like that. 
but all I would have accomplished would have been to damn his soul to eternal punishment in hell. That's all I would have done. And in so doing, I would have been damning my own soul as well, because all prophets will go there as well. All false prophets will go there as well. But Galatians 1.8, but even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what you have heard, what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. And so we have to be aware of this other gospel that's going around in our day. Now my, my employee would not repent. He would not submit to the claims of Christ because it was too hard for him. It was abomination for him to depart from evil. Have you ever tried to convince a child that something new that you're introducing to them is good when he's, he or she has made up their mind that they don't like it? <laughs> Your parents, you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? Um, you, can't, you can't make them eat it once they've made up their mind. They, they don't like it. I don't care how good it is. Uh, you cannot make them even taste it, and uh, and you shouldn't. There's just no way you can make them, even if you could force them to, to eat it, you can't make them like it. Um, and unbelievers really do not know what's good for them, and they really do not know what will bring them this sweetness of soul that's reserved only for the Christian. They, they engage in unlawful practices that hurt them over and over again, and they never connect the dots. And they turn their nose up at godly practices that would really be good for them. But this is nothing but the deceitfulness of sin. And even though, uh, even though we have trusted Christ and we have, we've been renewed by the Holy Spirit, and we have a new nature that hates evil and loves righteousness, we still have remaining corruption that tries to entice us into sin, don't we, from time to time, right? From time to time, sometimes very often, right? But we must always remind ourselves that sin is bad. And when we embrace sin, we're forsaking our own happiness. Now listen to Matthew Henry on our text for tonight. And see how he tries, he ties this verse in with the previous one, verse 18. This shows the folly of those that refuse instruction. For they might be happy, and they will not. They might be happy. There is in man strong desires for happiness. God has provided for the accomplishment of those desires, and that would be sweet to the soul, whereas the pleasures of sense are gratifying only to the carnal appetite. The desire of good men toward the favor of God and spiritual blessings brings that which is sweet to their souls. And then Matthew Henry speaks of the second half of the verse, and he says, Yet they will not be happy, for it is an abomination to them to depart from evil, which is necessary to their being happy. And then he says this, and I underline this, Never let those expect anything truly sweet to their souls that will not be persuaded to leave their sins. I thought that was pretty good. Never let those expect never let those expect anything truly sweet to their souls that will not be persuaded to leave their sins. And George Lawson says this, he said, The deceitful pleasures which fools think they enjoy is a means of hardening them in their sinful ways. 
And it does harden them, doesn't it? Therefore, their eyes are blinded to the wretchedness of their own condition. Their minds are deceived by their imaginations from the influence of the pleasures of sin and the devil. And so their hearts cling stubbornly to those sins that effectively exclude true happiness. For this reason, a bad man cannot possess true happiness because true happiness cannot be separated from true holiness. Sin points Sin poisons every enjoyment and provokes divine justice to blast all his hopes and what he desires shall utterly decay. You see, we need to understand that's the way it really is. Because when you, when you watch Hollywood movies, especially since 1970, they, um, they're not... They're, they don't have any compunction to uh, follow the, raw, the laws of sowing and reaping. Now, you watch a 1960 Western, and I guarantee you, I don't care if the bad guy has stolen $20,000 from the bank and he's seems like he's getting, getting away with it the whole length of the movie. At the end of the movie, he's going to get his just desserts or he's going to repent and give the money back. You're going to see that in any, any 1960s, 50s or 60s or 40s Western. You're going to. After 1970, not necessarily so. The reason I bring this up is because when you write a book, a fiction book, or a Hollywood writer writes a, a script, and they are, they are, in a sense, they are acting as a god. They are able to make the outcome be whatever they want it to be. Just write it into the script. They can write anybody out of the script that they don't want in there. They can kill off whoever they want. They can make somebody do something bad and reap something good. They can do whatever they want. And sometimes people think like the Hollywood people want you to think. By the way, that's why they, they really truly don't want you. They don't want to make uh, moral movies that, that they have a good moral point to them nowadays because they have an agenda to corrupt our, our nation and our society. And that's my belief. I believe that's true. But, but the fact of the matter is, Christians watch these movies and then they get all kinds of ideas about, for, for example, about romantic love. And you, and you see how they do, do it on the Hollywood movies, how they fall in love and they fall out of love and all these, these kind of things. And it corrupts the minds of our young people about what love really is and, and what it really is to have a committed, loving relationship. And in so many ways, they corrupt our minds. And one of the ways they corrupt our minds is by... Uh, thinking that somehow you can do bad and and somehow if you work it just right, it can work out good for you. Always understand, always understand that sin will never bring you happiness. And that's one thing good about our Heavenly Father. Our Heavenly Father will never allow one of His children to do something sinful and not regret it. We'll always regret our sins. And you think about your own life. You think about your own life. And everybody in here has got things they regret. Every single one of you. I do too. And I don't have one single regret about anything I've ever done that's righteous, that goes along with God's will. Every single one of the things I regret are things where I've transgressed the will of God, where I've not done according to the laws of God. That should tell us something, shouldn't it? And shouldn't that tell us every time we're tempted 
to do something wrong. Every time we're tempted to do anything against the will of God that we understand in Scripture, alarm bells should go off in our minds and say, I'm going to be unhappy if I do that. I don't care how enticing it seems. I don't care how enticing it looks. I'm going to regret it. Because God runs the whole show. He writes the whole script. And there is no such thing as sowing iniquity and reaping sweetness of soul. As George Lawson has said, as Matthew Henry said, the only, the only people that can have sweetness of soul are those who are, are pursuing holiness. The holiest people are the happiest people. Sometimes they're the most afflicted, but they're happy. They're happy in the Lord Jesus Christ. So here's kind of how it works. A person engages in a sin that brings them pleasure, but that pleasure is short-lived. So they imagine experiencing it again, and so they engage in it more and more. But as the time goes on, it brings them less and less pleasure. This is how sin works now. It's like an opiate. A moderate dose of an opiate can bring a pleasurable experience. And so a person wants to experience it again. But after a very short time, very short time, it doesn't bring them that pleasure anymore. And so they need to up the dose. And this will work for a few days or so. And then in order to to, to experience the same feeling, they need to up the dose more. And, and, And I'm talking about illicit drugs, taking drugs this way. But many... Many people do this, of course, until they overdose enough to kill them. Uh, this is the opiate problem we have today, and it's how drug addiction works. But sin is like that. Sin is an opiate. Sin brings pleasure. It brings us carnal pleasure. But the more you engage in it, the less pleasure it brings at the same doses. And so people engage in it more and more until it's a monster that controls them and they're totally enslaved by it. And that's what sin does to people. Sin actually does that, and it will do that to you. It can, it can actually do that to a certain extent to a Christian if they allow sin to reign in their mortal bodies, which is why Paul says in Romans chapter 6, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies. I think he's saying that because a Christian can, for at least for a period of time, let sin reign in their mortal bodies, and sometimes God will turn you over to it till you get good and sick and tired of it. But it'll never bring pleasure. It'll never bring happiness. It will only bring you um, uh, sadness. And, uh, of course, James says the end is death. James 1.15, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. So you see how the knowledge of these things can help us in our Christian warfare. If we're fully knowledgeable of these facts that we're giving out here tonight, it helps us. When we're enticed to sin, we need to be firmly convinced that this enticement is a lie. It shows itself as something desirable that will make us happy, but its real intent is to draw you away from God and steal away your own happiness. 
And that's the truth of what sin does to us. So if we're truly convinced of this, then you know what we'll do? We'll cut off our right hand and we'll pluck out our right eye. As Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, if your right eye offends you, uh, pluck it out, cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, cast it from you. For it is more profitable that you, one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Now, Jesus, obviously, we know that, that cutting off your right hand is not going to stop you from sinning. Sinning, sin begins in the heart. So he didn't mean it to be taken literally. We, we all understand that. I don't want anybody listening on the Internet. And then tomorrow I get an email and said, you know, my son just cut off his right hand. <laughs> no, we understand he's talking. But, he, but, but he's making a serious point here. In other words, if we're serious about fighting sin in our lives, we'll do whatever is necessary to put that enticing sin away from us. Or put ourselves away from the sin. I used this, our, this uh, illustration this morning in the NAFCO Bible study because we were talking about Hebrews 12 when we're talking about laying aside every sin, every weight, and every sin which so easily besets us. So I said we have to set us for the Christian race. We got to set aside our sin, but we also have to set aside the weights too. Sometimes there are weights that are not sins, and I gave this example that I know Christians that can't have a television set in their house. You know, they try a television set and it keeps them from their family devotions. It keeps them from uh, many Christian duties. And they, and, they, and they keep stumbling and stumbling until they finally just say, well, no television for me. And you know what? For that particular Christian, that was a weight. And they needed to take it out of the way because it was bringing them into sin. Is a television set a sin? I mean, that same Christian might walk into my house, they see my huge big screen TV and say, well, he's pretty low. He's pretty worldly, you know. And of course, maybe I am a little bit worldly. But, but, it's, but, I, but I enjoy my TV and I don't believe it causes me to sin. And so I have a TV. I'm fine. But see, if you've got something in your life that's causing you to sin, even if in itself it isn't sinful, that's one of those weights that... That, that, that the writer of Hebrews is saying to, to put off that you might run the Christian race. And so, and so, but what might be a weight for you might not be a weight for somebody else. But the fact of the matter is we take the Christian life seriously. And that's where cutting off the right hand and cutting out, plucking out the right eye uh, has to do with. Uh, and this, uh, of course, people that uh, deal with people that have addictions so often have to help them. They use this passage of Scripture to help them to understand their, their former relationships, that um, uh, their, their druggy friends that would, would, would entice them to go to drug parties and stuff and get high. That You need to cut those relationships off. You cannot be going to these parties. You cannot be hanging around with these people that are going to entice you to sin. It's like cutting off the right hand. Well, what, the, what, what Jesus is teaching us is that, is that sin is a serious thing, and we need to take it seriously. And uh, uh, and uh, and if we do take it seriously, we will uh, uh, put aside every weight so that we might run the Christian race. We, we need to make no truce with sin. We need to pursue sin in our lives to death. We need to show it no mercy. You don't make a truce with it. You don't compromise with it. Listen to Paul, 1 Corinthians 9, 26-27. 
Therefore, I run thus, not with uncertainty, thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest, when I have preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. You know? And I like the King James even better. It said, lest, by any means, means when I preach to others, I myself should be a castaway. It's serious business. Paul took it as serious business, a Christian life, and we need to do the same. So I ask this question of you, and that is, are you a partaker of the water of life that brings everlasting sweetness to to your soul? Or are you a fool that refuses to depart from evil? You know, you're one or the other here tonight. You're either a believer that's fighting against sin in your life, or you're a fool. And and, uh, departing from evil is, is an abomination to you. Though, as I've said also, I do know that Christians sometimes toy with sin and they can blur the lines of distinction. You could be in the process of being enticed to sin. But my advice to you, if you're a believer and you're being enticed to sin, is that you you need to take a verse like this verse we're studying in Proverbs tonight and memorize it and quote it to yourself and and uh, and and even quote it out loud uh, uh, if you need to and and quote it to God in prayer uh, that you'd not give in to that evil desire that brings that would take away the sweetness of soul that comes from the gospel and uh, and and that we would uh, run the Christian race. So do you have that sweetness of soul? Maybe there's somebody here tonight or somebody watching on the internet that has never experienced that sweetness of soul from the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, Jesus offered it to the Samaritan woman that had never, I mean, she'd had five husbands, and the man she was with at that time was not her husband. She was an immoral woman. She she had no, she wasn't seeking after God. She came out there to the well to find water to drink, and she ran into something she wasn't expecting. She ran into the Lord Jesus Christ and him telling her about the water of life. He said, if you would have asked me, uh, 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 he said, I would have, I would have given you uh, this, this water of life. And he explains it to her, of course. But before the chapter's over, this woman has drunk the water of life and she's experienced that sweetness of soul. And so maybe, you know, at the beginning of this lesson here tonight, you're a stranger from Christ. But now at the end of the lesson, you can just you can just surrender to Christ like the Samaritan woman, and you can just drink of that living water, and uh, the Lord Jesus Christ will receive you, and uh, and you'll be saved. Uh, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved, and you got to call on his on his name sincerely. You can't be calling on his name deceitfully like these people that think they can just ask Jesus into their heart and hold on to their sin. No, no, no. You got to come. And lay your life down at the foot of the cross. He will receive you. He will not reject you. So there's no reason for you not to have that sweetness of soul. And if you're a Christian here that's struggling with depression or struggles in your life, it all comes back to the same thing. Is that we need to be pursuing holiness. We need to be pursuing God. And that's where you will find your happiness. That's where you will shed your depression and and your struggles. And I know I've gone over this some time ago when we studied this here a couple months ago. I realize there is clinical depression and things like that. I'm not saying there isn't such a thing. But most of the time when we're struggling with these kind of things, it's because we're, we're messing around with sin in our lives. 
or not pursuing holiness. So, so I, I beg you to follow the Lord and remember that uh, a desire accomplished is sweet to the soul, but it is an abomination to fools to depart from evil. The great accompli- greatest accomplishment I've ever accomplished in my life is when I gave up my old life and gave it to the Lord Jesus Christ, and that has brought me the sweetness of soul that I possess ever since. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.